Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12. And I'll read verse 12, I'll let the church read verse 13, and then we'll turn over to Psalm 91 and read the first four verses. Verse 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Very good. Psalm 91, we'll be looking at the first four verses. I could feel the confidence growing as you all were reading. Maybe we'll be more prepared this time. Psalm 91, when we get to verse 2, I'm not going to help you read. You'll be on your own. So I'll read 1 and 3, and the church will read 2 and 4. You all do your best to read together. The Bible says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. We are in a spiritual war, my friends. A spiritual war between right and wrong, good and evil. Satan is out to get you. He wants to destroy you. And... Christian, we must stand, and it takes courage to stand, especially in the face of struggle. This morning, we're going to look at where the Christian gets that rest. The title of the sermon is this, The Christian's Fortress. The Christian's Fortress. Let's pray. Lord, at any given time in a church this size, there are people going through hardships and struggles. Lord, may Satan not use those struggles to pull us down and destroy us. May we find our rest in you. May we find our refuge in that place of prayer. May we turn to you and be made better by our problems, not bitter by our problems. Help us today, God, with this message. May it ring true in our hearts and lives. May someone leave here today encouraged to cling to you like never before. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there are three postures, three postures um, commanded to the believer in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us we are to run our race with patience. We're to run our race with patience. Ephesians 4 tells us to walk, to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And Ephesians chapter 6 tells us to stand. To run, to walk, and to stand. I want to run the Christian life. But sometimes I find myself out of breath, so I slow to a walk. There are times where, as a Christian, uh, uh, trying to live the Christian life, I'm fatigued walking, and I'm left with standing. How many of you here have lived the Christian life long enough to realize that sometimes even standing is hard? Even standing for Jesus is hard. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now as Christians it's important to understand that we have a home base. 
a place of protection, a place where we can catch our spiritual breath so that we can get back into the fight and fight the good fight of faith. Over and over and over again in the book of Psalms, you find the psalmists declaring that God is our fortress. God is our fortress. Now, in Bible times, medieval times, a fortress served as a central location where armies would fortify themselves during times of battle. Uh, let's look at some pictures of old fortresses here. And what you'll notice is that all of these uh, coming up before you here, they're all built on a rock. Um, most of them, if not all of them, are located on an elevated plain. They are surrounded by high walls. Uh, many of them have watchtowers to look out and see a good distance away at who's coming. And some fortresses would have been surrounded by a moat. A moat, that water that surrounds the fortress, making it even more difficult for the enemy to be able to get in and attack. Now, when someone of a particular tribe or nation was away from the fortress, they were more vulnerable to attacks and death than they were when safely located inside of that central fortress. Now, Christian, let me make an application here. Satan hates you. He hates you. Well, why would Satan hate me? I'm a lovable guy. I'm a lovable girl. Well, Satan hates you for two reasons. If you're saved, the first reason why he hates you is because you were made and created in the image of God. And he hates God. He hates God. Back in the Garden of Eden, God reached down and with his fingers in the dust of the earth, he formed Adam. And then after he saw that Adam was alone, he said that this was not good. And so he put Adam to sleep and performed the first surgery and took from Adam a rib. And from that rib with his very hands, he formed woman. And Adam woke up and saw Eve and God performed the first wedding ceremony. And we have the very first marriage. And God made marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. That's not uh, my opinion. That's a biblical history. That's what God tells us. God made man in the image, in his own image. And Satan hates you because he hates God. He hates you because you are made in the image of God. By the way, let me just add here, God makes no mistakes. God makes no mistakes. When God gave you your biology, he knew exactly what he was doing. Don't question that. Don't question that. When God made you a man and he gave you male body parts, he made you a man and he didn't make a mistake. God made you a woman and he gave you female body parts. He made you a woman. He did not make any mistakes. God makes no mistakes. God is perfect and God made you. Um, the Bible tells us, and I know I'm chasing a rabbit here. I'm doing it on purpose. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Let's not defraud our bodies by questioning God's decision in the gender that he assigned us. By the way, Christians, although there's a lot of what's called gender dysphoria in the world today, the world does not need you to come across as judgmental, but loving and caring and kind. You can stand on truth and do so with a kind spirit. God calls us to be firm in our belief, but gentle in our approach. You're made in the image of God, and God loves you. But can I tell you something else? If you're saved, He hates you twice. 
because you've been made in the image of, second, uh, image of God a second time. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And in John chapter 3, verse 7, uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, John 1, 12 says that you have become the sons of God. You've been made into the image of God a second time. And so Satan hates you doubly. Satan hates you twice. Why is it important that you dwell in the fortress of God Almighty? You must do so because Satan hates you and he's out to destroy you. There's a constant battle going on between the forces of good and evil for your soul. And the Christian will only find courage to stand in the face of evil and for what is right if he is safely living inside of the fortress. Psalm 91 has become a famous psalm quoted by many, but few know that it is an orphan psalm. We do not know who wrote it. Some speculate Isaiah, others Hezekiah, some Jeremiah, and many think it was David. We don't know exactly who authored the psalm, but we do know that God authored it from heaven. What man wrote it down uh, isn't as important. God wrote the psalm. Uh, We just don't know which hand he used to pin it down. I propose that Christians who dwell under the shadow of the Almighty... Christians that make God their high tower. Christians that trust in God will be protected from the forces of evil. Christians that make God their fortress will have the courage to stand for their Jesus, no matter how evil the day. We're going to look at three principles out of Psalm 91 this morning as we continue our series, Stand with Courage, and look at this sermon title, The Christian's Fortress. Point number one this morning. I hope you take notes as we go here. Note point number one, our assurance. Our assurance. Look with me at Psalm chapter 91 and look at verse 1 and 2. Look down at verse number 1 and 2. The Bible says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. That's just beautiful, isn't it? That's like reading the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still water. And that, that, that Psalm has become famous because it, it, just, it just soothes the soul to hear it read or quoted. Psalm 91 has that same soothing effect. Look back there with me again. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord... He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Doesn't that have a similar soothing and calming effect? Now, on the surface, it's a beautiful psalm, but below the surface, it's even more beautiful. It's even more amazing. Now, to the English reader reading in the English um, translated Bible, if you don't dig below the surface, you would miss this, but in the Hebrew... Boy, this was even more powerful, even on its surface. In verses 1 and 2 alone, God has ascribed four different names. Four different names. Let me share them with you and show you how that God is our fortress. Letter A, notice, Elion. Elion, and note the word possession. Possession. Look back with me at Psalm 91, and look at verse number 1. He that dwelleth... In the secret place of the Most High. You see how the word uh, high there 
has a capital H, that's a proper noun. That's a name. And the Hebrew word there behind the word high is the word elion. Elion. John Phillips said he, speaking of God, is the possessor, the possessor of heaven and earth. That is the thought connected with this name. He owns everything. The thought is that of possession, that uh, there's a hiding place for us. We have a God who owns that hiding place. Thirty-six times in the Bible, God calls himself Elion. How about that for a hiding place? When it comes to building a fortress, you would want access to the highest mountain, the uh, most rugged terrain, to put that uh, fortress at a place that would be most impenetrable to the enemy. And my friend, you don't have to worry about where, what mountain is located uh, and, 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 and whether or not you can have access to it and what it costs because, my friend, God is Elion. He owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and He owns the hills that they're on. Amen? He has it all. And God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Everything there is belongs to God. Letter A, we see the name Most High. He is the most high. He has the, the, the best tactical position for the fortress. Elion, possession. Letter B, notice the name Shaddai. Shaddai, and notice the word provision. Provision. Look back at Psalm 91 and verse number 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The Almighty. You see that word Almighty. Mr. Phillips continues, someone might say, it's all very well to know that God owns everything, but what does that mean to me? Two guys were passing by a bank, and you know how one guy always seems to want to have the story that just tops everyone else? You know that guy? And that guy was sitting in the driver's seat, because you know those people have to drive, right? They have to be in charge. And he looked at the guy in the passenger seat, and he said, you know what I saw? He said, yesterday I was walking through town, and I was walking past that bank right there, and I saw an armored truck pull up, and I watched them move five million dollars into that bank the guy sitting in the passenger seat just kind of shrugged his shoulders and say said who cares he said who cares it's five million dollars he said yeah but you left off the two most important uh, two most important words for you (laughs) for you that money isn't for you it's not for me i don't care there's five million dollars in that bank now listen god is elion he's the possessor of everything but he is also shaddai the thought behind that name embedded right, uh, in, uh, is, is embedded right into, the, into its Hebrew structure. Is that, the, watch this now, God is not just a living God, He is a giving God. He's not just a living God, He is a giving God. Aren't you glad that God gives you His blessings and that they're new every morning? Aren't you glad that God is faithful? A week ago today, on a Sunday morning, I woke up and I went into the restroom and started the process of getting ready to come to church. And I looked out my window there in my restroom and over the top of the the, the hill there, the mountain, I could see the sun getting ready to peek up over the top of there. And I said, boy, God, you're getting ready to do it again. You're getting ready to do it again. You never fail. We don't have to question whether or not the sun's coming up. We know that God, can, we can count on God to provide, to provide. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, he said, But my God shall supply all your riches, or rather all your need, according to his riches and glory 
by Christ Jesus. And the psalmist reminds us in chapter 37, verse 25, I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. You know, in a, uh, in a uh, fortress, there's one tactical problem that you run into. They can lay it under siege. You know what it means for a fortress to be under siege? That means they surround the fortress and they cut off the food supply. You know what eventually happens when the food runs out? The fortress means nothing. Eventually, those folks are going to come pouring out of that fortress. Right? Because they're starving. And then the battle gets brought to the enemy outside. Here's the great news. God never runs out of food. You can live in the fortress, which is God, and the army can lay it under siege, uh, and it just doesn't matter because God is bigger and better than the army, and His very name means provision. Letter C, we see the third name in these first two verses for God, and it's the name Yahweh, Yahweh, or Jehovah. And then we get from this promise. Look at Psalm 91, verse number 2. The psalmist says here, I will say of the Lord, Lord, that word Lord in the Hebrew is the word Yahweh. He is my refuge and my fortress. You remember where the name Yahweh was first used? It was used as that burning bush that would not be consumed. You remember this story? Moses is taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's sheep and he's getting ready to take them and put them away for the day and go home to his wife. And he looks over and he sees a bush over by Mount Hebron that's burning. And he sees that bush, uh, or rather Mount Horb, and it's burning and it's not consumed. And he thinks, I must go see. He walks over to it and they say, uh, a voice comes out of the burning bush and says, take off your shoes for you are on holy ground. He takes off his shoes and he gets down on his face and he worships and God begins to communicate with him. And he tells him, he says, I need you to, uh, uh, to go back into Egypt and let my people go. Demand of Pharaoh that he let my people go. And Moses says, well, who should I tell them sent me? And he said, tell them Yahweh sent you. I am that I am. I exist because I exist. Smart Alex will ask a creationist, well, um, if you believe God created the world, then who created God? And the answer is, I am that I am. I exist because I exist. God has always existed. We can't comprehend that. But from eternity past into eternity future, His very nature is to exist. And what was God promising there? He was promising that He would deliver them from Egypt. Now, I don't want to get too far off track here, but please pay attention and catch this neat little truth there. Egypt is a picture of you and I living in the Darkness of sin. And just like Moses led the Egyptians or led the Israelites out of bondage and through the Red Sea and into salvation, Jesus Christ came to lead you out of the land of bondage through the blood of Christ and into the land of salvation. And He freely offers it to you, not because of who you are, but because of who He is. His name is Yahweh. I am that I am. We have promises that He will be our hiding place, that He will cover us with His wing, the shadow of the Almighty. We have that promise from on high. Is He your refuge? Is He your fortress? Notice the fourth name, letter D, Elohim. Elohim, and that means power. Power. Psalm chapter 91 and verse 2. Look there with me. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. Here's the fourth name, my God. My God in whom will I trust? The name Elohim. Now, the name for God always, this name for God always occurs 
in a plural form. Okay, you guys, it's 11.30 morning in the morning. Are you all awake? How many of you have had at least one cup of coffee? Would you raise your hand if you've had at least one cup of coffee? All right. The rest of you, you have an excuse. Those of you that had a cup, cup of coffee have no excuse, okay? How many of you did uh, uh, pretty good in English class in school? Would you raise your hand? How many of you did terrible in English class in school? All right. I'm going to learn you something. If you just raise your hand, I'm going to learn you something right now. Amen. I'm going to learn you something as long as you haven't gotten sick, all right, or taken ill. Whichever one it is, I'm going to learn you something right here. I'm going to teach you something about um, uh, the Bible and the grammar. Did you know that the Trinity is found even on a grammatical level in the Bible? The name Elohim, watch this now. The name Elohim is a, it, uh, it occurs in the plural form, but the verbs that follow it are generally singular. Let me give you an example in English. If I were to say, we is going back to the store, we is going back to the store, you would look at me and say, that guy doesn't know English very well. It's not we is, pastors, we are. We are. Do you know that, that the Bible about Elohim, Elohim is a plural name for God followed by a singular uh, uh, verb. He can say, we is going back to earth, and it's correct because he is a triune God in one. Now that's powerful. That's powerful. Oh, did you know that the Trinity can be found in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God, Elohim, plural, created, singular, the heavens and the earth. goes on to tell us that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. That's Jesus. We have God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son found in the first three verses of the Bible, Elohim. Here, he says, it is God that will be my fortress. It it is God that will be my refuge. Hey, if you stop to think about this, God is so powerful, he can create the entire world with just his words. It's taken humanity all of these years, all of these millennia, to understand what we have about our earth and our world People say, follow the science, follow the science. I like how science has turned into its own religion. You know who made science? God did. You know how he made it? With his voice. With his voice. There are things about science that our scientists just don't understand. And they think they do, and they're arrogant in their knowledge, but they just don't know. I believe Romans 1 says this, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They became fools. My hope is not found in what some arrogant scientist tells me on TV. My hope is found in God who made the heaven and the earth. He is my refuge. He is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is the one that I turn to when times are tough. He is the one I turn to when I'm uh, uh, laid under siege and I feel as though Satan is tempting me and trying me and uh, attempting to pull me down. If we're going to stand with courage in the face of evil, then we need a home base where we rest. We need a refuge from the storm. We need a fortress from which we can have the tactical advantage over our enemy. God is our high tower. God is our rock. Elohim is our refuge. Elohim is our fortress. Number one, our assurance. Number two, notice, our attack. Our attack. 
Look at Psalm 91. Look at verse number 5. Please, if you have a Bible this morning, let me encourage you to use it. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in the pew there in front of you, in the pew rack in front of you. But please, by all means, use the Bible if you can. Uh, It's God's Word that moves our hearts, not man's Word. We're here for what God says, not what Pastor Lejeune says. So let's look at verse number 5 of Psalm 91. The Bible says, Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Look down at verse number 13. The Bible says, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and dragon, shalt thou trample under feet. Our attack. Notice letter A, the constancy. The constancy of the attack. The constancy of the attack. Look, look at uh, verse number 5 with me again. And notice that this war against the believer is, re, is relentless. It does not relent. Look at verse number 5. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrows that flieth by day. You see how this is a night and day thing? Look at verse 6. Nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness. They use the cover of darkness. Nor for the destructions that wasteth at noonday. Well, when do we get a break? The truth is you don't. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. If you still have that, flip back over to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 12. Paul says here, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. I want you to see this. This isn't some conspiratorial nonsense. This is Bible. Look here. The rulers of the darkness of this world. There are rulers in this world who are ruling in darkness. Look at the next phrase here. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know, most of the government rulers around the world are rulers of darkness and overseeing spiritual wickedness. Spiritual wickedness. Have you ever felt as though you were under a spiritual attack? Raise your hand if you've ever felt as though you were under a spiritual attack. I'm going to tell you a little secret this morning. You are constantly under spiritual attack. You're under spiritual attack right now, this very moment. Now, you're at church, and so that helps stay off the attack, but I promise you, Satan's after you. Now, he may not know your name, but he has a system in place. Do you know that a third of the angels were thrown out of heaven with Lucifer? Those angels became demons. And Satan has so structured them in such a way where they are assigned to every territory of land on planet earth. Did you know that there is some demonic force that looks over your home, looks over your life? And he has one goal, and that's to attack you and ruin you. And it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. This is why Christians need a fortress. How many of you here can tell me what are the three greatest enemies against the Christian? I'll get the first one going for you, then you finish it. Ready? 
the world, the the world, the flesh, and the devil. And when we say the devil, I don't know that the devil necessarily knows my name or knows your name. He's one being, and there's seven billion people that live on planet Earth. He doesn't know everybody's name. Some people say the devil made me do it. The truth is the devil probably doesn't even know who we are. But he has a power structure. Somebody knows your name in his kingdom. We'll talk about the devil more in just a minute. Let me focus in on the world and the flesh. You know what Satan really does to try to trip you up? He uses sinful culture to trip you up. If he can get you to fall into the trap of watching filth on TV or in a movie, if he can get you to fall in the trap of falling in love with social media and making that an idol and a god, someone says, ah, social media is not my god. If you get fired up about it, it probably is. Probably is. Could you go 30 days without looking at social media without withdrawals? Most can't. Maybe that's a problem. Maybe Satan's got a, a, a stronghold in your life there. You know, the world is the sinful culture around us. I, I, I want to just continue to hit this hard all year long. There has to come a point in each one of your hearts where you look at the world and you become disenchanted with it. You look at what the world is doing and you say, I'm just going to do the opposite. If that show is popular, then I'm not going to watch it. If that trend is popular, I'm not going to fall into it. Do you understand there are curators of wickedness that are trickling down the trends that hit the average person, meaning to move them more and more into wickedness? We have to quit being hoodwinked by the world and its system. Uh, Look, I, I hate to come across as a rebel, but I am one. When it comes to this world and the culture... I'm a rebel. And um, if you ever say, well, Pastor Lejeune, why don't you just go with the flow? Because the flow is going to take all of us to a really bad place. Now, I'm not saying everything that uh, the world tells us is wrong, but a, good, a large chunk of it is. And the rest of it that isn't should be scrutinized very carefully, and we should all look at it with a raised eyebrow and a skeptical heart. How about the flesh? How many wake up every day and you battle the flesh? Yep, the old flesh. You know what the flesh is? It's filled with pride and selfishness. It's filled with the desire to do everything that it shouldn't do. The constancy of the battle. Satan won his greatest battle against humanity when he got Adam and Eve to eat that fruit in the Garden of Eden because every day now we are plagued with a flesh that wants to do wrong. Men, you don't want to love your wives. Because your flesh doesn't want to. Women, you don't want to follow and submit to your husband because your flesh doesn't want to. Children don't want to obey their parents. Mankind does not want to bow the knee in prayer and pray to God. We don't want to pray because that would mean that I'm not self-reliant and I can't take care of myself. And and that would mean that I have to admit that God is bigger and better than me. And while we would never, ever, ever be bold and brazen enough to come out and say that, that is exactly what our lifestyle screams when we don't pray. When you don't bend a knee, what you're telling God is, I don't need you. I got this all by myself. 
God puts his hands in his pocket and he steps back and says, go ahead and make a mess of your life. I'll be over here when you need me. When you realize you can't do it, you call on me and I'll be right there. Draw nigh unto God and he will draw, draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. And A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James 4, 8, 9, and 10. Listen, uh, we are constantly under assault. We are constantly under attack. And Satan wants nothing more than to see us fall. Let her be noticed, the carnage. The carnage. Look at Psalm 91, verse number 7. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand. But it shall not come nigh thee. Who will it not come nigh to? Those that find their fortress in God Almighty. Back um, a couple of hundred years ago, maybe 250 years ago, 300 years ago, the method of war was that you would have two armies, shoulder to shoulder, they would line up and they would face their muskets at each other and they would shoot. You remember this with the American Revolution? The British Redcoats showed up, marching, hot legs kicked high, right? At least that's what I have been told. I don't know if that's true or not. But they had their red coats on. They had their big black hats on. And uh, they'd go looking for an open field. And us uh, Americans, us rebels, we would hide behind a tree and pew, pick them off one at a time. And what did the British say? They're fighting dirty. And you know what? Because we won and winners write history, it's not dirty. Amen? Otherwise, it probably would have been gone down in history as dirty. Now, I think about that. Two armies lined up, and I try to put myself in one of those armies. There I am with my musket in arm, and I'm shoulder to shoulder with my fellow soldiers, and it's my turn. My line is up to stand and point the gun at the other side and shoot. And I watch as the guy on my right hand falls, and the guy two guys down on the left falls, and the guy on the end of the line falls, and the guy on the other end of the line falls, and I I look around, and I survived that turn, and so I go to the back of the line, and I come back through, and the way that would work is whenever one side had killed all the other side, those left standing won. And I step back, and I'd go, well, how would I be the one that came out victorious? You know, there's no skill in that. Really, it just comes down to luck. How do you make it through the whole Christian life without falling? Without being one of those thousands that have fallen on the right hand and 10,000 that have fallen? How, as Psalm 91.7 describes, is it luck that you get all the way through the Christian life and you're not a casualty of the devil? No, it's not. No, it's not. You see, Christian, if you're going to survive this spiritual war, you must, you must make God your fortress. Nothing breaks my heart more than to see someone who once served God fall by the wayside. It's crushing. I've seen, I've seen Christian marriages end in divorce. I've seen godly young people give their lives over to sin and addiction. People who were friends of mine, who I grew up with, they're casualties. I've seen Christians who once attended church faithfully 
walk away from God and what they call organized religion. I've seen pastors get put away in jail for embezzling money or hurting a child. I've known other spiritual leaders who have fallen into adultery or other disqualifying sins. I've seen those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus fall right back into the traps of a godless worldly lifestyle. One of the most discouraging things to witness as a pastor is someone who you counseled and prayed over as they give up on living a Christian life and you watch them succumb to worldly, sinful living. Why does this happen? Why do people go back into the world and live like the world? Why do people go back and join Team Satan? And no, they don't lose their salvation, but they're spiritually, they're falling off. They're falling by the wayside. The Bible says a just man falleth seven times, but riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. What separates the just from the wicked? What separates those who uh, uh, keep going for the Lord and those who God labels as a wicked Christian? One gets up when they do wrong and they keep moving forward. The other one falls and just stays down and lives like the world, and talks like the world, and acts like the world, and and just lets worldliness drip all off of them. They don't care about God anymore, and they're living a life that's miserable. And nothing hurts my heart more than to see that casualty. See that, that carnage, that spiritual carnage. And I promise you, my friend, Satan wants your marriage. He wants your head. He wants your heart. The Bible says Satan comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He lost your soul the day you got saved. But that doesn't mean that he can't ruin your life and make you miserable in the process. And I don't stand up here and preach with passion because I'm angry at anyone or because I hate anyone. I want to grab you as lovingly as I can and shake you and say, God loves you. He is your refuge. Run to Him. Hide in Him. Satan hates you. He wants to destroy you. Run away from Him. Have nothing to do with Him. And oh, how many Christians... They get sideways with the church. They get sideways with some Christian. They have a problem with this or that. They disagree with the Bible here or there. And they thumb their nose at God and Christianity. And they run to the being. They run to the spiritual wickedness that is going to destroy them. You know what happens when you take a boat and you untie it from harbor? It just slowly drifts away from shore. You have some Christians that make a conscious choice to turn their back on God and they just walk away from God on purpose. But can I tell you, that's not how it works for most church-going folks. You know how it goes? We quit reading our Bible and praying. And then we used to go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And then Wednesday night falls off. And then Sunday night falls off. And then Sunday morning becomes real sporadic. Oh, I love God. Yeah, keep lying to yourself. You love God, you'd be in His house. Oh, I'm faithful to the Lord. I've got a great relationship with Him. Jesus gave His blood for the church. You won't go to church. You're not right with God. Now, you're at home watching online, and you can't, you're not here because of the virus, and you're faithfully watching. I'm not here to condemn you. 
I thank you that you're still watching at this point. But there are people who, they're running from God. They're not watching online right now. They're not here. And you ask them, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. You're a Christian in name, but you're not really practicing. God is not your refuge. And I promise it's just a matter of time until Satan will destroy you. I, I want to just, uh, oh, well, let's move on and look at letter C. Then I'll get to this point. Letter C, notice their commander. Their commander, the commander of the wickedness, of, of, of the spiritual darkness in high places. Look at Psalm 91 and verse 13. The Bible says, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, that's a snake, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. We have three different animals named here, a lion, a snake, and a dragon. Who does that describe? That's the devil. Now, we'll look at the actions here in just a moment of what's going to happen to this animal, but please understand that the commander of the forces of darkness is the devil himself. Satan and his army of evil are constantly waiting for you to have your guard down so they can attack you. They are waiting for you to wander away from the fortress. That is the Lord God Almighty. If Satan can get you by yourself, he will isolate and devour you. Here's the danger of not being in church. Here's the danger of not reading your Bible and praying. On a daily basis. We wander away from the flock of God. We wander away from the people of God. We think, oh, I've been saved 20, 30, 40 years. I, I already know what the pastor's going to say before he says it. And all the verses he quotes, I know them all. And, uh, I, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. By the way, that's a problem if that's your attitude. We get to this Bible, I don't need church anymore. I, I know all that. And you know what? Satan's got you right where he wants you, pal. He's been around for 6,000 years. Or more. You're no match for Satan on your own. Neither am I. And Satan will chew you up and spit you out. He'll turn you into a trophy and he'll mount you on his wall. And you'll be nothing more than a spiritual husband. Now you can always come back. But most don't. Most don't. Satan's after you. Satan's after me. Satan's after this church. And listen, Christian, when times get tough and you have hardships come into your life, you have to make a choice. Am I going to stand or am I going to sit? Am I going to stand or am I going to lay down? Many of you here have sinful habits that you brought into being saved. Maybe you have uh, a looseness with your sexuality or you have a drinking habit or um, you have a mouth problem or uh, maybe you have an addiction of some sort you bring into salvation. Listen, I just want to say to you right here, right now, I'm not here to condemn you in that struggle, but I am here to tell you that it ought to be a struggle. You know what struggle means? Struggle means you're fighting. Struggle means you're trying. Struggle means you're giving it your all. And you may lose sometimes, but you're battling, and you're fighting, and you're warring. And when you fall, you run to the fortress which is God and say, I can't overcome this. I'm having a hard time with this. And God says, boy, I'm the provision. I'm, the, I'm, I'm everything. I, I offer you that promise. I offer you that power. You hide in me. You rest in me, and I will restore you. But can I tell you what happens with a lot of Christians? They get saved. They're forgiven. They bring old sinful habits into their Christian life. And they don't even want to deal with them. And they let those sinful habits own them. 
And Satan uses those habits and he will tear you apart. Our attack. Well, we have an assurance that God is our refuge. But please understand, you get away from that fortress, boy, that spiritual warfare will overcome you. Number three, and lastly, notice our God's affection. Our God's affection. Letter A, notice our protection. Now, before I read Psalm 91, 9 through 13, I want to just be, um, be very careful with the text here. This is a Hebrew song. Okay, so first the interpretation. God does not promise that no evil will fall to a Christian. It just doesn't. Now, it seems that way in Psalm 91, 9 and 10, but he doesn't. This is a promise to the nation of Israel that if corporately they will behave themselves, that God will keep them safe and protected. But that's not a promise to the the Christians. So we need to make sure we understand the audience to whom this was written for, okay? I'm going to give you some uh, explanation on that further in just a moment, but let's look at Psalm 91, 9 through 13, and, um, and then we'll take it from there, okay? The Bible says, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, thou there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou uh, dash thy foot against a stone. Uh, Thou shalt tread, excuse me, thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Now, interesting enough, before I make the application here, do you you recognize verse number 12? Look back at verse 12. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Where have we heard that before? Remember that? The temptation of Jesus, right? Uh, remember that Jesus was taken up on the temple by the devil and he said, throw yourself off and does not say in, in, the, you know, in, in, in the Bible that you know, he'll, he'll protect you. Jesus, now listen, I am not questioning Jesus' handling of this. Jesus handled it perfect because he's God and he can do no else. Jesus quoted what? He quoted um, and he said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I believe that was his response there. If I could have had Jesus quote a second verse to the devil... You know what verse it would have been? It would have been the one right after the one Satan quoted. Look back at verse number 13. If Satan had said to Jesus there, Hey, throw yourself off the temple, for it is written, uh, They they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest lest thou bash thy foot against the stone. stone." I would have loved it if Jesus would have looked back at him and said, "Um, But but do you know what the next verse says? Satan says, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Hey, lay down, Satan. I'm going to walk all over you. I would have loved that. That's not funny to you all because you're not a Bible geek and nerd like I am. But anyway, that, to me that's funny. But that's not how Jesus handled it. And Jesus, again, Jesus handled it in a way that's perfect. Can I tell you here, though, that God offers his protection, but that doesn't mean that we won't have problems. Sometimes problems come into our life, and God signs off on those problems. I'm looking at a group of people this morning. Some of you are going through some real tough stuff right now. And like I sang in my song a few minutes ago, you wonder, where is God? God, where are you? How could you let this happen to me? How could you let this happen to people that I love? Now, Pastor, it says here no evil is going to come. Let me just remind you of a lady by the name of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom and her family were from the country of Austria. 
And when World War II hit, they took Jews in their home and they hid them in their home. And they got away with that for a long time. And one day a friend turned them in and told on them. Corey, a lady, her name is Corey. Corey and her sister and her parents and family were arrested, put on a train and sent to Ravensbrück, which was a concentration camp. There in that place, her family was killed. Her, sis, her and her sister were abused in every way possible. They took her sister off and put her in the gas chamber. Can you imagine how horrible that would have been to see your sister die? Corey was supposed to die, but because of a clerical error, she was missed. So they put her back on the schedule to have her killed a second time. Right before her day of death was to come, Ravensbrook was liberated by the Allied forces. She was set free. Was uh, Corey protected from evil? Was Corey, did evil come into Corey's life? The answer is yes, it did. Interestingly enough, the book she wrote about the whole experience is entitled, out of Psalm 91, The Hiding Place. By the way, if you haven't read that book, I encourage you to read it. It is a fantastic book. I read it when I was 13 or 14 years old. It made a profound impact on my life. If you have teenagers, have your teenagers read that book. It will give them a brand new perspective to life. Now, I want you to notice this quote. Brother Joe, put that up on the screen for me here. Notice this quote. God does not keep us from terror. He keeps us in terror. God does not keep us from terror. He keeps us in terror. There's going to be all sorts of terror that hits your life. Your life's going to hurt. God never promises hardship won't come. But he promises that in that hardship, he'll keep you close by his side. My friend, don't push away from God in the hard times. Cling to him. Look back up with me, if you would, at Psalm 91 and verse number 4. He shall keep thee with his feathers. And under his wing, wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Once not far from a mission station in the heart of Africa, a forest fire swept through the bush, leaving death and desolation in its wake. After the fiery flames had subsided, a missionary took a walk down one of the trails, looking at the havoc wrought on every hand by the fire. He noticed a nest by the side of the way. Enthroned on the nest uh, was the charred remains of a mother hen. Idly, the missionary kicked the poor heap with his foot, and to his astonishment, out from under the burned and blackened carcass of that mother hen came running out baby chicks. Mother love had taught that hen to give her life for her brood. They had found refuge from the flames beneath her feathers. Jesus said in Luke 13, 34, He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, stonest them that, I, that are sent unto thee, how often would have I gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. If you're listening to the sound of my voice this morning, whether that's in the room or on the live stream, let me just say that if you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
to be your eternal refuge from hell. Let me encourage you to find the the courage to call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. Letter B, notice our promotion. The chapter ends with a threefold cord of promises to the believer that dwells in the fortress of God Almighty. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, we see a promise of God's love. Look at verse 14. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him, I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. Verse 15 offers us a promise of God's liberty. Look at verse 15. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble and I will deliver him. There's that liberty and honor him. And then in verse 16, if we dwell in God as our fortress, we see a promise of God's life. His love in 14, his liberty in 15, his life in 16. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Where does the Christian find the courage to stand for what is right? He finds the courage in the fortress of the Lord God Almighty. If you are going uh, at the Christian life alone, and you're not reading your Bible and praying, and spending time meditating on the Bible, and uh, attending church, my friend, you are in danger of being a casualty. Maybe you feel that Satan has gotten the victory over you. Can I ask you if that's the case? Will you come back to the fortress and let God renew you? Maybe you're listening this morning and you say, I'm dwelling in God. He is my refuge, but I want to double down on my relationship with my God. I would just encourage you this morning, whatever camp you're in, let's make decisions for Christ, that He will be our fortress. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. How many of you here this morning would say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day and time in my life I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be my Savior. He is my eternal refuge. I'm going to heaven because my faith is in Jesus. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand by way of testimony? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. If you're a Christian, please raise your hand. Amen. You can put your hands down. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you don't even really know what that means. Maybe, but you'd like to make Jesus your personal Savior. You'd like to ask Him to give you the gift of eternal life by your faith in Him. If that's you this morning, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? I don't know I'm going to heaven. Pastor, would you please pray for me? I'm just not sure. Is there one? If you're watching online at home and that's you, let me just encourage you to stop what you're doing and bow your head and pray. Say to Jesus, tell him that you're a sinner. Tell him that you know that you deserve to be punished for your sin. Call on him and ask him to be your Savior. Put your faith and trust in what he did for you on the cross. Right there where you are, call out to him and ask him. How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, I need to do a better job of making God my fortress? Sometimes I drift away or I wander away from the fortress and I can feel the oppression of sin attacking me and attempting to destroy me. Pastor, the struggle is real in my life. Would you pray for me that I will return to the fortress of my God? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? I need to dwell 
in the shadow of the Almighty. How many here would say, Pastor Lejeune, I believe the best of my knowledge. I'm dwelling in that fortress. Pastor, pray for me that I'll double down and spend more time with God. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? I'm dwelling there. That's my dwelling place. I know that protection. Pray I'll stay there. Lord, help us today as we make decisions for you to make decisions that will last. Lord, help us never to take our eyes off of you. Lord, may you be our fortress in Jesus' name.